Hello and welcome to the Medjlis Podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Medjlis and author of the weekly Central Asia in Focus newsletter. The Tajik government has been lashing out against anyone Tajik authorities believe is a danger to the regime. The people of eastern Tajikistan's Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Region have been a target since May when the government launched an anti-terrorism operation there in response to peaceful protests calling for changes of local officials. But the Pamiris in Gorno-Badakhshan are not the only ones being targeted in the Tajik government's recent wave of repression. Activists, journalists, bloggers, lawyers, and others are being rounded up. Many have already been tried, convicted, and sent to prison. So what's behind this, and, and, and what has happened in Tajikistan since May? To discuss all this, I'm joined by Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, who spent many years in the mountainous areas of Tajikistan and Afghanistan, and is the author of the book, Bridging State and Civil Society, Informal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan, and more recently wrote the article, The Assassination That Shook the Premier Mountains to the Core for Open Democracy Net, who will be starting also as a visiting scholar at Harvard's Davis Center in September. Humaira Bakhtiar is an independent journalist and a Tajik activist currently living in Europe. Steve Sperdlov, a rights lawyer who has spent many years focusing on Central Asia and is currently an associate professor at the University of Southern California. And thank you all for joining me today. And Suzanne, I'm going to start with you. Um, the crackdown on the Pamiris, uh, or, or the people in actually in Gabal, Gorno-Badakhshan Autonomous Oblast, or people who are even outside, has been intense since May. I, I actually don't remember such a campaign from Tajik authorities before. Could you describe the situation in and around Gabal for us? Yes, since May, they have arrested and killed local leaders. They have arrested and charged journalists, human rights activists, poets, bloggers. They've even gone after, oddly enough, um, like a gentleman named Faramuz and his not Faramuz or Gasha, but a different one who worked for the KGB or the GKNB for the Tajik government, or Sharafat, you know, who's um, who also has complied with the Tajik government in every way, you know, and she works with the Ismaili Council. I think it started out as this, you know, one uh, gentleman named Goldbedin Ziobekov in November, um, and they killed him over his beating up of the prosecutor, and then. It went from there. There were protests, and then there was a big protest in May that was planned and announced, announced on May 14th, and then it occurred. And then there was the killing in, in Vamar Roshan, and then there was the killing of uh, Commander Bokir. And if you look at then the progression from May 22nd after the killing of Commander Bokir, then there was the killing of the two other local leaders, Zoir and Khosan, who, you know, and then there was the arrest of the... Um, Khalifa, uh, Mozaffar, and it, it just kind of, you you look at the whole picture and you begin to wonder, and then yesterday it was announced that the Tajik government wants an accounting of every single Pamiri that works at every single IGO and INGO around the world so that they can get an accounting of how many there are and so they can equalize and have non-Pamiri, more non-Pamiri Tajiks. And also they claim that the Tajik language documents that are being sent to them uh, because they're being written by Pamiris are not in adequate Tajik and they can't understand them, which, which I'm sure is untrue. So, and then, so you ask, so why is this happening? I'll just briefly on that. Um, I think it's, some people say it's because of Rustam's president, Imam, Imam Ali Ramon, 
wants to um, sort of seed the ground for his successor, Rustami Mamali. But it also seems a little bit more than that to me, in the sense that the persecution that is growing against Pamiris, um, they also took away most of the large businesses that were controlled, as well as various extraditions from the country. So I think that, I, th- I just think it's a little more than that, that this sort of undercurrent of um, maybe uh, discrimination is now just boiling to the surface and it's almost becoming normalized to try to purge the government and IGOs and NGOs of, of Pamiri presence. So I, I, I agree. be uh, also clear for the benefit of our audience too. Um, you know, the Aga Khan Foundation has been very active up in Borno Badakhshana and built a lot of things. And, and even the foundation, you know, which was doing good works up there, is all of a sudden being uh, is is coming under scrutiny also, right? Um, they took the park away, park away from them. So essentially, yeah. nationalized the park he built. Uh, other organizations he was involved with are are being audited or reviewed. Is yeah. this correct? Yeah, there's microfinance loans that are that have been paused. That they are being audited. They also are threatening or closing down possibly the lease, not renewing the lease for the lease. They are allegedly not allowing summer camps uh, funded by AKDN. And you have to wonder, so why the Aga Khan since 97 has invested about a billion dollars a year, the Aga Khan Foundation and AKDN in particular, about a billion dollars a year in Tajikistan. That was very needed money for the country. So why is it that suddenly Tajikistan is deciding, hmm, you know, we don't care that much about this money anymore. Are they getting pressure from Russia and China? Are they getting enough money or offers of more money from Russia and China to, you know, purge the country? But I mean, I just look at what's the motive and a willingness to um, put that much money at risk that into the development of the country. Okay, thank you. Um, and Humaira, we're going to come back to Gornobadakshan and the Pamiris in a second too, but Humaira, um, it's, it is not only the Pamiris who have been targeted lately. Five members of, of uh, Saeed Abdullah Nouri's family, uh, he was the former leader of the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, uh, they, were, they were convicted and put in prison in late May. Uh, Dushanbe police said that they had detained at least 12 members of the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan in, in June. Um, and of course, the Russian prosecutor's office is now calling for Russian authorities to declare the IRPT a terrorist organization. And Tajik authorities are trying to connect journalists and, and bloggers and, and even some activists uh, inside Tajikistan to the IRPT and, and the other group that's banned in, inside Tajikistan, Group 24. What, what, is, what do you know about this and what's this feeling among the, the Tajik community who has fled Tajikistan and is now in Europe. What are the, how do they look at these developments? Thankfully, first, here I could say that for I, I would like uh, to talk about two or even three groups of Tajiks who, uh, because, uh, you know, the people who are in Tajikistan, the things uh, they think about uh, this situation total different as we in Europe, we are thinking different about all of the situation. But generally, we could say all that it is kind of this repression started like um, 15 or 20 years ago when Rahman already started or maybe Rahman 
uh, accepted that this uh, country should be just uh, in his control and in his family control. And 20 years ago, it, such kind of repression started. But last time, what's the different uh, between like a 20 years ago um, repression, 10 years ago and nowadays uh, repression. Uh, the difference is so before uh, Rahman uh, like uh, was against all just against some political parties and political members who were famous and who were in this side active to work or to do something on the government or between the people. But right now it uh, seems like so that Rahman doesn't want any kind of opposition or opposition opinion or any kind of free thinkers. That's why nowadays we are seeing like a mass of repression on every group. In one time he repressed every group like a uh, as you might hear, there is uh, political parties, Islamic Renaissance parties and uh, political group 24, and then Ismailis in Tajikistan and right now bloggers and, and other, other ones who were active. And here uh, we have to pay attention that if Rahman 10 years ago, five, even five years ago, he uh, like uh, arrested or I don't know, even killed the persons who were politically active. But right now for Rahman, even some activists from civil society who just cover or talk about some uh, social situation, some cultural situation, even they are uh, more under dangers right now. I don't know how to how to analyze it uh, correctly, but I think that uh, Rahman right now has totally a big, big afraid. Uh, not just about uh, he is afraid of not just uh, from political persons, political opinion, or something like this. Even he has afraid uh, from every uh, single uh, citizens. Who can uh, who can say um, an opinion or who can give an opinion about any kind of situation? Yeah, I think those. I think that it's uh, for Rahman. It will be for Rahman and even for us, for Tajiks, it will be more and more uh, worse in future because if Rahman started with very strong and politically famous persons right now. Uh, he is fighting against normal citizens as well. And in future, actually, I have an afraid to say what can happen with our people in Tajikistan. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you very much. Um, you know, and, and Steve, uh, you know, to, to, I would like you a little, to build a little bit on Hamira's point and also Suzanne's too. I mean, this is, you, you spent a lot of time out there. You've been in Tajikistan. You've watched developments over over many years in, in Tajikistan and and you know fought for the rights of, of a assortment of people out there you know activists now we got activists bloggers lawyers you know I mean it's it's before we saw some of these people being singled out and targeted by the government but it seems like everyone is being targeted do you remember a time when there was so many people that on the government's blacklist so to say you know Suzanne mentioned the poet for instance right it, this is a Muyasara Sodonshoya, for instance, who was jailed for 11 years for connections with Commission 44. Um, do you ever remember this kind of, you know, broad 
campaign against anyone who's potentially an opponent or critical of the government. Well, thanks, Bruce. And first, let me just say that Suzanne's work and Humaira's work is very courageous at a time like this, because as we know, anyone working on these issues is is at risk, especially for, for Tajiks like Humaira, who experienced transnational repression, uh, pressure on their relatives. And I know Humaira's seen her fair share of that. And, and Suzanne's been documenting this. So it's it's a real honor to be with with all of you. And I think, Bruce, you're, you're getting to the heart of the matter, which is that I think many of us that work on Tajikistan were so severely alarmed starting around well, for many years, of course, but uh, I'd say one of the worst waves that began around 2014 when you had the the, de- the detention and then the assassination in Turkey of uh, the Group 24 leader Kuvatov, and then you had the, the destruction, the dismantling of the opposition in Tajikistan, the IRPT. That was a period when we saw this, this enormous activity. But as you just said, the broad swath I, I didn't believe that it could get wider or bigger or or in a way deeper in the way that it has. And, and as Suzanne laid out so well, we've seen a systematic destruction of not just civil society, but really all society in the Pamirs since May. And and and, and it, it just continues to grow. But we've also, as Humaira's laid out, we've seen a mass campaign now to detain journalists, bloggers, lawyers, the International Commission of Jurists just came out with a statement saying there are literally only four lawyers, four lawyers in total in, in the Pamir region that could represent people that are now on trial. Eurasianet reports that 80 trials have maybe already been conducted in the month of July and August, and we're talking about hundreds of people in detention at one time. So I mean, this is this is a, a campaign where it, it seems it's not quite clear when this shift took place. And you can you, you can state uh, when Tajikistan made that shift from being repressive and dictatorial to now, I think, easily can say totalitarian. But that shift has happened. And I think, as Suzanne laid out, you know, a lot of people are are thinking that this has to do with some sort of transition from the father to the son preparing the ground for Rustam Momali, and that may be the case. But to me, it seems that the paranoia that is simply inherent in this type of dictatorship grows over time. And Rahman is now the senior statesman of the region. He sort of stabilized or increased his, his stature to some degree geopolitically with in, in, in the aftermath of the Taliban taking over uh, in Afghanistan. We're sort of, you could say, started getting more respect on the international scene, unfortunately, in the past year, which was, I think, also really distressing and troubling for many of us who watched him being invited to European capitals. And perhaps that gave him more carte blanche. But I, but I, but just to answer your question, uh, Bruce, I think this, this campaign is, is totalitarian. It's widespread. And one other aspect, of course, is the, the degree to which the bottom has fallen out for Tajiks in Russia. Of course, we've seen transnational repression for many years. We've seen a lot of disappearances, extraditions, and forced returns to Tajikistan. But now perhaps, given that Russia is in such a state of crisis, that seems to have maybe even further escalated or, or amped up the rate at which Tajiks can simply be disappeared off the streets. And we've seen a number of cases like that happening just yesterday on August 17th. I know this will come out in a few days, but the blogger Maksud Gayosov was detained. Uh, he was the author of a comic blog, Bobingi, uh, very popular on Instagram with lots of followers, also a Pamiri. 
and he will likely show up in the next few days. We've been watching this pattern unfold. We saw Parviz Goyib Nazarov and Ruslan Lashkarbekov simply disappear. And then, in fact, during the arrest, in, this is in Russia, Ruslan was trying to actually jump out of a window and, and or was pushed out of a window and was temporarily hospitalized. And the activists Oraz and Ramzi Vazirbekov simply disappeared in Domodedovo airport in uh, in the end of July and then appeared later in a video saying that they had come of their own accord of their own free will to Tajikistan. So this is absolutely the worst that 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 we have seen that I've seen in the many years that I've been following this and it requires us to take to take immediate action. Thank you. I'm glad I'm glad you uh you said that um as unfortunate as the situation is. I also wanted to ask another question. You, you mentioned that there's uh, only four lawyers available to the people in Gabal. Um, but but some of these some of those lawyers are actually detained, right? I mean, there was Faramuz Irgasha, for instance, is 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 actually technically detained, even though he is defending some of the other people uh, who have also been detained in court. But he himself has charges against him and is not at liberty anymore. Is this true? It is. And isn't it isn't it awfully tragic and ironic that it's almost a total repeat of the situation we saw in 2015 with the very now famous and notorious case of Buzurgmir Yorov, another lawyer who was also detained when he stood up to represent members of the Islamic Renaissance Party of Tajikistan, which was declared a terrorist organization. And so this is very much a, a playbook that we've seen. So Faramuz, he ran for, he, he discussed running for president. And then, yeah, now he is detained. And it's this Commission 44, which uh, Suzanne knows more about this, but the fa- but how Orwellian, how, how tragic is it that a commission set up to broker peace then becomes the target and everyone systematically on that commission gets put in, in prison. It's a, it's a travesty and, and targeting lawyers is a particularly effective way of silencing civil society and just cutting the legs out from under it. And thank you for helping me with my transition to the next question, which is to Suzanne. Could you explain to uh, for the audience, please, a little bit about what Commission 44 is? What was it supposed to do? Well, I'm going to go back a little bit. Uh, thank you for the question. Also, I should say I'm really honored to be here as well, Omara and Steve, and, and to be asked by you, Bruce. Thank you so much. So it's been a, traditionally in the region when a conflict happens. There have been representatives from civil society that are chosen to engage in discussions with the government in one way or another. That's what successfully, you know, and sometimes they've brought in uh, His Highness the Aga Khan. And that's what helped in 2012. Um, They also had a civil society group, which was not called Group 44 yet, but it was a similar group of people um, in 2014, 2018. And then in this most recent one, Group 44 was put together because the protests were the protests were about the fact that Gulbuddin Ziobekov had been killed, and they the local community wanted an investigation into his killing. So there was an agreement with the government that they they could have this Group 44 that would work in coordination with the Tajik security or government to investigate this, and that was put together. I can't remember. I can't remember if it was December, January, maybe January, I can't remember. But so they put together a group of civil society leaders and lawyers. And so the investigation went on and uh, locally there, there was a lot of discontent with the investigation. And then at some point, 
I can't remember if it was March or April, there was an announcement that the investigation was over and it was done. And then that is why the protests continued. But they also um, disregarded Group 44 and then began arresting some of the members. So when you ask about when this transition happened, something happened, I believe, in around March or so, maybe April, or maybe even a tiny bit earlier, that shifted the government from, uh, how do I put it, sort of semi-pretending to be willing to work with civil society members, sort of, to we're done with that. We're going full throttle authoritarian. We are not doing this anymore. We are in charge and we are in control. And, you know, it also coincided with a sidelining of Yatimov to some extent. Could you tell the audience who he is so that everyone understands who Mr. Yatimov is? Yeah, so Mr. Yatimov is the head of the GKNB in Tajikistan. Hopefully everybody knows what the GKNB is, but the head of their... um, intelligence services. And he has played a pivotal role, particularly in Gorno-Badafshan, in that of the governor of Gorno-Badafshan, Governor Mirzanabadov, was a protege of Yatimov, and they very much um, controlled the, the way in which surveillance and security was conducted in Gorno-Badafshan. So when Yatimov was sidelined, and there's various rumors about why that happened, and I don't think I'll go into all that here, But when he was sidelined, some speculate that it was the son of President Rahmon, uh, Rustam Imam Ali, who took over the sort of security strategy of Bornabarafshan and the Pamiris. And under him, a gentleman named Shahrukh, who is in charge of the organized, the anti-organized crime unit, if anybody knows the exact name of that. And he has a group of under him called Unit 6. And Unit 6 generally does the interrogations and the harsher forms of what some might say is uh, torture. I would say is torture going on. So when we saw the increased crackdowns and the lack of negotiation, some speculate that it's because Rustam took over that region and decided that this is done. We're not negotiating with these leaders. And then there was kind of this slow roll, like I said, into just a full crackdown in the region. And what Humaira said, and, and, and Steve as well, in this other larger crackdown, I mean, you know, that's been going on. It, 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 I think the Pamiris and, and, and Gorno-Barakshan is the last bastion of uh, even a tiny bit of independence in the country. You know, in 2015, when IRPT was cracked down on, you know, there were a couple of years before that, there were several local leaders, which I'm sorry, blanking on the names of. I apologize. I'm sure Steve and Humaira both know. But, but it has been going on. I think right now the focus is more on the Pamiris than others. And I just want to say one last thing. There, there, I, I, was, I was listening to your program, Bruce, about the asylum seeking and about the gentleman who's in Poland in the extradition prison. And I don't know if he's been extradited back to Tajikistan or not. I, I don't. But, but the fact that there are, so are also these asylum seekers who were part of the IRPT in some way or another who are being tagged as terrorists and how various European and UK, US governments are believing them. I mean, also, you know, the giving of the names of, ta- of Tajiks to the US and UK embassies, as was reported, um, is also deeply concerning because they're charging them with sort of 
false charges of terrorism or overthrowing the government or whatever, and then they're being put on Interpol list. I have also actually many other disturbing stories of, of ways in which the government is trying to force um, universities and whatnot to send Pamiri students back to Tajikistan as well. Sorry, I went on so long. No, no, no. Thank you very much. And that, that's good because uh, in the second half of our show, we're going to get in a little bit more to the transnational repression aspect of this. But first, I have to uh, pause for a moment and do the quick promo spot here uh, and remind everybody that this is the Mitchell's podcast, Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty's weekly current affairs talk show focusing on Central Asia. And I'm Bruce Panier, host of the Mitchell's podcast. And we're discussing the Tajik government's recent crackdown on anyone Tajik authorities perceive as being an opponent of the regime. And I am joined by Humaira Bakhtiar, an independent journalist and Tajik activist currently living in Europe. Steve Sverdlov, a rights lawyer who spent many years focusing on Central Asia, is currently a, an associate professor at the University of Southern California. And Suzanne Levy-Sanchez, who spent many years in the mountainous areas of Tajikistan and Afghanistan, and is author of the book Bridging State and Civil Society in Formal Organizations in Tajik, Afghan, Badakhshan, and more recently wrote an article for OpenDemocracy.net, the assassination that shook the Pamir Mountains to the core. So the transnational uh, repression aspect of this is, of course, especially troubling um, because it's been it, it has been existed. We know that Russia will give uh, certainly Russia will give some of these people over to the Tajik authorities. They have a history of, of that happening. Uh, this year, there's been. Well, you know, with the detention yesterday, and if that that individual ends up being back in in Tajikistan, that would be, uh, I think, eight by my count this year that would have been deported or extradited, whichever way you want to put it, from Russia back to Tajikistan. Um, Humaira, how you know, with with the government campaign going on right now, and everyone understanding that the government is looking for anybody that that they consider to be an, a, a critic or an opponent. Um, but what's the what's the feeling among the Tajik community in Europe? And and are you in connect? Are you in contact with some of the people in Russia, the Tajik citizens who have fled Tajikistan and are in Russia? And what are they saying about this? Yes, of course, uh, I'm in touch with some Tajiks in Russia, and there are also many different opinions between them. Some of them, you know that. Rahman, unfortunately, has a strong, strong propaganda, and we should as accept that. Uh, unfortunately, many people, many Tajik people, think that Rahman has a right, and people not should to say something against the life situation and Rahman anywhere. Doesn't matter, not just in Tajikistan, also abroad. You should not criticize Rahman. There is also such kind of a group. Another group, for example, I knew a couple of Badakhshani who was not active uh, on political situation, but right now they have so many afraid to be uh, deported to Tajikistan because they think that just because we are Pamirians, just because we are Badakhshani, we could be under dangers and they have afraid. Another ones uh, who I know, for example, they are already trying to get out from Russia, but as you know, they cannot fly because uh, we have seen was what happened with uh, brothers Vazirbekovs. And uh, that's why um, some other activists, um, not just Badakhshani, also another activists, they are trying to be uh, how to, um, to be at home in anywhere, on friends' home, or even they are trying to get out from Russia, which is very, very difficult. And here uh, I would use um, this situation and call international community 
Beauty and also help of uh, Steve Swerdlov and also Susanna and you, Bruce. Maybe you can help some of them get out from Russia because you know that if they will be deported uh, to Tajikistan, but then no one can help them. So there is that's why uh, many different uh, different opinions in this situation in Tajikistan abroad in Europe for example in Europe I have it pay attention that there is there are just a couple of uh, persons who actively uh, discussion the situation in Tajikistan what's happens uh, with with Pamiri uh, with Pamir and what's happened with uh, journalists and bloggers right now there are just a couple of persons who lives in Europe for many years and many years, I mean five, six years, and discuss uh, about it. And other ones, uh, they prefer to be silent. And here I could say that um, maybe they have an uh, afraid for their family because I do know from my personal situation when I was so active and I wrote and criticized it and even I had some speeches and some conferences, immediately my family, my father were under dangerous and police Uh, come, come to my home. KGB took my father for many times and for many, many hours after which he had a heart attack. That's why I cannot accept uh, what's, uh, why people are silent, why they are not discussion about it, but I can understand them because everyone should put their family under dangerous sense. You have to go t- through this pain. And uh, I hear I can uh, say that unfortunately, unfortunately, uh, again, that Rahman has a success in this way, on this way. And we are seeing how many people are, uh, we can as compare in 2015, in 2016, even until 2018, how many people were active abroad in Europe, in Russia, in America. But can you say right now how many are Uh, of them still active because as I had uh, analyzing it, of course, for me, for myself, I analyzed it, that many of them preferred to be silent, many of them in some kind of way, they are uh, cooperated with uh, government, with embassies abroad, and many of them just uh, started to be busy with their life because we know that even in the United States, in Europe, in Russia, you have to work. And so that's why, uh, unfortunately, I think that Rahman uh, has a success in this way. And right now we have just a couple of activists who are still trying to fight against Rahman. And here for first, uh, this is like a national, uh, national alliance. They are active still, and then another couple of journalists and activists. And here, Bruce, I would like to say uh, something what remind here Steve and Susanna about crop down. I totally agree with them. And here I just uh, wanted to add that the crop down has uh, started 10 years or 15 years ago, and they started it started with political parties, political persons. Then it comes uh, from 2013 and 13 it comes to media and after 2016 we knew that in Tajikistan we don't know any kind of uh, independent media who is really free or any any kind of journalist who has not afraid and writes with 
of name about political situation. And then it comes to advocates after media, it comes to advocates. And uh, as remind here, Susanna, that in Badakhshan, there are just a few or stiff was it, I don't know, uh, a few uh, advocates who are ready uh, to fight for citizens. But I can say that, unfortunately, after this um, repression advocates, there are no any uh, lawyers who are who is ready to uh, fight, uh, to, to work for another political opinion. Uh, I have asked before many, many uh, lawyers who works also, who are working also for international NGO, for local NGO, as they are all openly say that, no, we don't take this case because it could be political and we don't uh, want to take this risk or they will close our injuries. Uh, so, and that's why uh, Rahman felt himself very free with Pamir and right now with bloggers as well. So thanks. I'm sorry I was a bit long, but I just wanted to add this as well. Now you made there was, were some great points, you know, and I should I, I'll mention it this right now that there is a couple of people I would have liked to have invited to speak about the situation in Gabal recently, uh, but but for the reasons you just na- you just listed uh, the concerns about family that they have asked that I not include them in the show because they're worried about they have concerns about the safety of their relatives or friends back home. Uh, Anora Sarkorova, uh, yes, is, is of course has been posting on Facebook and and Telegram. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and her her family ended up running into trouble too um, about that. And she had mentioned in one of her posts that a lot of lawyers are reluctant to take these cases because uh, they're afraid of what will, what can happen to them. Uh, it kind of alluding to what Steve had brought had mentioned about Buzugmer Yorov, uh, that situation where if they take these cases, they're afraid that they're they're going to get in trouble themselves. And Steve, that that brings us to you. I was wondering, you know, you are a lawyer, and, and you're looking at the legal processes, the so-called legal processes going on and in Tajikistan at the moment. Now, I'll use one example. Uh, Suzanne had mentioned Halifa, uh, Muzaffar um, Dablat Mirov. Muzaffar Dablat Mirov was called in for questioning on July 26th, and already by the start of August, he had been sentenced to five years in jail, in prison. You know, the, the whole trial process here is, you know, stuff is being declared secret. They can't talk about it. Uh, you know, no one, they're closed door trials. We don't know if some of these people have lawyers. I mean, you know, from your, from what you see, is there any kind of process here or is they just hurrying people through and throwing them in jail? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and, and if I could, I wanted to add something about the, the transnational question uh, later. But in terms of the, the legal process, the due process rights that we've seen violated you know, run the gamut. Uh, obviously, the denial of access to counsel, denial of contact with relatives, as you said, in many of these cases, going back many years, the Tajik authorities, the first thing they do is is put this graf uh, sekretnosti or this, uh, you know, they attach a label of classification or national security significance to a case without any real basis to do so, which makes it impossible for lawyers that represent the defendants to to speak with journalists. And that may seem, you know, that may seem like a distinction that, you know, doesn't have too much meaning in the context of this larger crackdown. But for the lawyers that are in Dushanbe or, you know, in Hujan, places like that involved in these cases, I've been in, in many situations where you know, even with the rights community that the lawyers are trying to inform, uh, the, the lawyers are hampered. They're unable to let us know what types of violations are going on, what sort of ill treatment their clients may be subjected to. And so 
as we were just discussing before, now a much larger number of trials have taken place in in a faster period of time. I, I agree with Suzanne mentioned. I think it was Shachrul Shamsudinov and uh, other players around the president and the president's son who appear to be uh, guiding these these trumped up trials, fabricated cases, and maybe they've, they've just simply put the process on steroids. But in the in the process, they're violating the Criminal Procedure Code of Tajikistan, which which still does guarantee that trial proceedings are open. There's no basis to to make them secret, and so you know, we can call them kangaroo courts. But but the the implications are really huge for the family members. It cuts them off from 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 information, and of course, we know that the most dangerous time for a person detained in Tajikistan and largely in Central Asia is in the first 72 hours. And why is that? It's because that's when it's most likely that police officers are going to try to torture a person into a confession. And we've seen that, unfortunately, as a, a sad tradition that's emerged across the region and especially in Tajikistan. And so we need, we simply need to have more interventions in a more creative way. There's been discussions about how international organizations should change their practices. What Suzanne mentioned earlier about you know, this request that they report their Pamiri employees to the government. What I think that requires us to do, what this whole crackdown requires us to do, is rethink every way in which the international community is is interacting on the ground and 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 more you know outside with the Tajik government. But we, we need to, if we want to address this crackdown, I, I think first and foremost, we need to have the, the basic trial monitoring. We we haven't heard, although I'm sure it's happening on some level, but unfortunately, the U.S. Embassy and the EU Embassy have been a lot quieter in, in, in recent years. We haven't heard of the traditional monitoring of trials, the you know, visitation of trials by the political officers whose job it is is to, to monitor human rights from the embassies. And unfortunately, that's that should be that should be something done by human rights organizations, but they've been unable for years now to register, to, to freely visit Tajikistan. So we need to have embassies doing this. And it's good that we've had statements coming out from the International Commission of Jurists about, about this, you know, the violations of legal process. But we, we simply need more of a robust response on a number of levels. But just, just quickly, Bruce, can I add something about the some of the other countries as you were plotting out the transnational oppression? Would that be all right? Yeah, yeah, please, please do. Just to mention that I think that in some ways that this you you mentioned eight disappearances or extraditions this year. I mean that's that's a mind-boggling figure. And I was just going to say that in previous years, Tajiks had fled via Belarus to places like Poland, and then they'd go onward to Austria. And as your guest last week, Leila, you know, wrote in a piece, we had this shameful case of Austria extraditing a member of the IRPT back to Tajikistan, where he was imprisoned for 20 years. But now that Belarus is, is so unsafe and has been undergo undergoing its own crackdown, has now essentially been annexed in a way to, to Russia, we've seen that become a really dangerous space. Uh, the activist Izat Amon, who later was also extradited from Russia and appeared in Tajikistan, he also had tried to flee and, and wasn't able to through Belarus. We also see uh, another force that's conspiring to make things harder. Um, think about what has happened between Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. The violence, the viol—I'm I'm sorry—the outbreak of conflict has meant that the Pamiri community and the, the Tajik community in Kyrgyzstan was at risk and was unable to leave Kyrgyzstan. Those that were in the opposition. So we've we've had a number of a number of situations that have made the the wider region 
more dangerous for Tajiks, and it it, it pl- places everyone at risk. And then finally, you know, people like Alim Sherzamonov, whom Irad knows him. He's a a Pamiri activist in Poland. He's been accused of terrorism, and his family members have been arrested. And people like him, I think they they walk around, unfortunately even Poland, fearing that they could be extradited even from Europe, because we've seen stepped up activities or conversations, I should say, between the Tajik government and and now European partners, labeling people terrorists, requesting their extradition. And as as ridiculous as that may sound, that they would honor those requests, I think some of those do manage to get through. And so that's why we saw these shameful cases of Shovoli Zoda from Austria, and also the earlier case from Poland, Mustafa Hayot, who was returned, and then these people are promptly imprisoned. So those those are all things we need to be aware of. No, thank you for mentioning that. And actually, Sherzamonov is, is the Tajik government listed him as one of the people that was responsible for organizing, quote unquote, the unrest in, in Gabao. And his brother was just sentenced to 18 years in prison at the end of July, I believe. Okay, we uh, we do we could talk about this for a long time. It's a really tragic and un, uh, situation out there in Tajikistan. But I'll give everyone a chance to make um, one last comment about what they think is important with what's going on in this situation, how it how it's different than what we've seen before. Um, and I guess I'll start with Suzanne. I just want to add just a couple things really quickly. The um, brother of um, Alim Sherzamanov. It has been reported to me that he has been tortured to such a degree that he's mostly blind now. I also have images, which I'm not able yet to disclose publicly because I have to verify them, of the tortured bodies of various people. And I think that I agree completely with with Steve and Homaira that the international community needs to rally around this as quickly as possible. There are 10 levels of genocide And when I was tracking where Tajikistan's government was and the level of genocide toward the Pamiris, and we can include the other groups as well, they're at level eight, if we look that up. I'm not going to list all of the things. Level eight, that's pretty far along in the process if you you look at, you know, forms of genocide. And I think it's also important to note that if the police were shooting into a crowd in the U.S., the way the Tajik security forces shot into the protesters in Harok when they did, and in Vamar, or just Vamar alone. But, you know, if there were, there's 67 in the past few years that have been killed, that would be an equivalent in terms of population of 88,000 U.S. citizens. And I think that's an important number to think about in terms of where the regime is going I think it's at a crucial point where the international community does need to step in. And I think what Komaira said about the people who have spoken up, who are under grave threat, I have had numerous contacts who have done things as simple as liked a post about a civil society, whatever, on Facebook, whose family has been, who who are out of the country and their family has been uh, interrogated, threatened, etc. So I think For me, I knew when I started becoming very public about this, I could never go back to the region. That was a sacrifice I'm perfectly willing to make. I don't have family there, and and I need to do that. And I think more people in the international community who don't have vulnerable individuals in those countries, that we need to start speaking up, and we need to start speaking more loudly. 
I'm going to write about this issue of the genocide and the phases of genocide soon and how it relates to the way the Tajik government is treating the Tajiks. So I also think it's important to say that Oraz Ramzes, actually, when they were in their forced confession on TV, if you watch his hand, he did the international SOS sign for help. So I think that's a sign that these forced confessions um, are indeed forced confessions. May I say one last thing, Bruce? Yeah, yeah, please. Okay. Um, so in terms of Russia, Russia's recent more and more extraditions, one source of mine has commented that in the past, Russia has played the long game, particularly with Pamiris and Tajikistan, and hasn't been willing to throw them under the bus, so to speak. But in recent times with the Ukrainian illegal invasion, there are those in the security services who have shifted from a more long-term vision to a more short-term financial gain. And so they're a little bit more up for, and, and, and with Putin's allowing it as well, to be paid for various extraditions. And from what I understand, they are getting paid pretty high sums of money to extradite these Tajiks and Pamiris back to the country. Thank you again for doing this program. Uh, Humara? What do you think? Uh, what hasn't been said, or what should, what what would you like to say about the situation? So about the about the situation, and uh, I am very pessimist, as I was, <laughs> I think, last ten years, because uh, you know, many people, many Tajiks, even many analytical, or even maybe some international researchers, they say that the situation is horrible and more horrible, more worse could. It could not be, but I'm uh, saying all time that we cannot imagine what kind of the country Rahman wants for himself, because every time when he will get control, he wants more, when he will, I don't know, his family, his son. And in my view, I see Rustam's, Rustam and his, I know, his community, his friends, more, um, how to say, more danger generation as his father with his commun uh, uh, community. Because you know that um, Rahman, uh, more or less, he had uh, some advisors who were uh, really uh, a good educated politicians and who had a really power to say something. It was, of course, before 10 years ago, but he had such kind of a community and many kind of his advisor and politicians and he member of his party were also uh, has power and they were rich. But the Rustam and his community, if we will analyze them, Rustam and his community, they are all uh, the children or the son of such kind of corrupted, uneducated uh, politicians right now in Tajikistan who so just power and who will accept just money and power. And that's why I am seeing a very uh, dark, uh, uh, how to say, I, I cannot imagine a light future for my country, I, at least for five, in next five or ten years, uh, because I see their all-time Rustam or Ozoda, who can be more more, how to say, egoist as their father, because they are not educated and they are also... Uh, not have such kind of community who has a power 
between people. So that's why uh, I'm seeing seeing all this kind of very very horrible. And I would like, as Susanna he's re- here reminds that uh, the international researcher or international community can do can do more. And I totally agree with this because we have seen uh, what kind of uh, result have uh, will give this this kind of international uh, how to say attention. For example, in my case, my father was uh, immediately free and KGB didn't disturb him again. In um, uh, Kaburi's uh, grandchildren case, we have seen that for first for 40 years, Rahman didn't let them go out. But when international community call him, do it, he hasn't another choice. He lets them free. We have seen also with Fatima, Shatnam Khododoyeva's daughter, who was also like a captive in Tajikistan. And when we were strong and fated together with international community, Rahman has let them free as well. So here, I I believe, I do believe in international community power because as we know, Rahman has very big afraid from international country, how to say, his colleagues in Europe and in United States because uh, Rahman is totally uh, depends on international financing and he wants uh, again to go to United States. He wants, as I knew, uh, his advisors and the old Tajik embassies really tries too much last five years to organize some international meeting uh, of Rahman in Europe or even in United States. And we it shows that Rahman wants, wants it and he depends on international, uh, in, in European and American uh, attention. That's why I would like if European community and United States will take this serious because later it could be too late because we knew uh, right now China, Russia and Turkey and even Arabistan, they are more active in the region and I have afraid that Rahman will totally turn to them. Then we will lose all our, our hopes. That's all, thanks. Steve, last word to you. Well, thanks, and in, in ending, Bruce, you shining a light on this crackdown uh, week after week is is so important. So I want to thank you for that. And and I, I I'll start with what gives me hope. I I think uh, actually Humaira mentioned some of these cases where you know with almost no means you know flash mob campaigns, social media campaigns have delivered at times good results. We saw how the campaign around the journalist Hyrule Mir Saidov in 2018. Uh, managed to free him. Humaira mentioned that children that were kept hostage and uh, prevented from leaving Tajikistan in the same year uh, were, were were also able to leave just because people banded together. They spoke out, like Suzanne was saying, raised their voices, especially those that don't have relatives back home, back in Tajikistan. And that so that gives me hope that you know all paranoid dictatorships fear people speaking up. They 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 are. They are stable until they're not. And I think so many cases around the globe have showed us this. And so as as dark as the situation is, and, and Suzanne, I'm very interested in talking with you about the genocide research you are doing. I think we, we never quite know what will be the, the turning point. Obviously, Rahman is very, very existentially worried about his own family's 
stability. And so therefore, I think we need to really be thinking about all the points of leverage that exist. Now, starting with the genocide question, which is a very serious one in international law in terms of what it what it requires uh, to, to meet that definition, you need to show that there's a specific intent on the part of authorities to destroy an ethnic, racial, or religious group in whole or in part. And and I think there, there may be evidence here, and, and I just want to note that this has come out in the news in relation to Tajikistan's cooperation with China over the Uyghurs, but, but what that case has reminded us of is that Tajikistan has signed and ratified the International Criminal Court statute. So that means that potentially, if there's some creative lawyering done, if we can show that these serious crimes have been committed and collect the evidence, well, then the ICC does have jurisdiction to look at or at least open investigations into crimes against humanity and genocide, the, the two out of three international crimes that the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction to look at. So that's one point of leverage. I just want to mention in the beginning. But then maybe two other broad areas. Second, as you know, Bruce, my very favorite thing in the world to talk about, sanctions. Global Magnitsky, which has now been passed in the United States and, and many other jurisdictions, it allows us to go over, go after those officials that are engaged in egregious corruption and human rights abuses. And that needs to be deployed. We haven't seen Tajik's Tajik government officials, I should say, added to that list. They need to be, and they need to be very quickly. So that's a tool that we need to use in the U.S. and other jurisdictions. The European Parliament has echoed a lot of these sentiments with resolutions. But I'd say that the third area is just the, the, the traditional, conventional public diplomacy that has been so lacking. We've seen the United States with its immense influence and speaking about values and democracy and then officials going to Dushanbe and just being very quiet in, in how they raise these issues. We know they're raising them privately, but are they raising them enough publicly? And the answer, I think, is no. We need to see more of a campaign, not just from civil society and academics and the relatives that have so much to lose, but from those whose job it is to raise these values and these human rights issues so I'd like to see public statements on the websites of the U.S. Embassy, the EU mission. I'd like to see that mentioned everywhere that we possibly can can see it happening. And the World Bank and the IMF are no exception. So those are all things that we can do and we can do quickly. And I uh, I, I, I appreciate Humaira's the the dark picture, uh, but I think I think we can we can change this if we work together and we work hard and fast. Great. Well, uh, thank you. I mean, I know this is a tough topic. And, and like I said, I wish we had more time we could devote to this, but we're already running pretty long. So I'd like to say thanks again to Steve Sverdlov and to Suzanne Libby Sanchez and Humayra Bakhtiar for being on the program today. Uh, a big thank you to Nathan Shoemaker, our Medjlis podcast producer in Washington, D.C. Uh, and a reminder, you can subscribe to the Medjlis podcast or Central Asian Focus newsletter by visiting RFARL's website at rfarl.org. Thanks, and we'll be back again next week. Bye-bye.